0: Hello and welcome to Talking Hockey Sense. I'm Chris Peters. So glad you could join me this week as I come to you live from Frisco, Texas at the World Men's Under-18 Championship, where I will be providing coverage for Hockey Sense subscribers at hockeysense.substack.com, of course, but also for Hockey TV as I'll be doing color commentary for all the games here in Frisco, and that includes games with the United States and it's one of the really fun things to to kind of be on my own in this media business now is is I have the flexibility to do a lot of things that I that I'm passionate about. And if you don't know much about me, I actually got into the business um, through play by play broadcasting. And in, in terms of uh, you know, I worked for the 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 club hockey team at Iowa State University, and I was their play by play guy for my last year with the team. And I was calling games off of a telephone that I bought at Walmart um, for a very new fledgling streaming service, uh, that I basically called into their switchboard and they put it out over the internet. It was, uh, yes, it was interesting times, but that's how I got into, uh, hockey media. And so to be able to be back in the booth again at the world under 18 championship, which is a tournament that I actually also, uh, broadcasted for, for several years, um, for, what was then fast hockey and now hockey tv so it's really great to be back in the booth i'll be with jim rich who has has called a number of of great events and you if you watch st cloud state hockey you'll hear his voice as well so a great play-by-play guy and and certainly excited to be on the mic with him uh, and such an experienced voice also called several world junior championships uh, back including the 2004 world juniors where usa uh, finally won their first gold medal. But I'll be doing color, and Jim will be doing play-by-play. And uh, the last time I, I was on the mic for a World Under-18 championship, there was this this young kid for Canada. I, I think his name might have been Connor McDavid. Yeah, that's right. It was McDavid. And uh, he, he was the MVP of the tournament at 15 years old. And boy, uh, I wonder whatever happened to that guy. Yeah, well, I guess we'll find out. But anyway... Getting back to this year's event, obviously we're happy to have the tournament, and it is a very fraught time still in the coronavirus pandemic. It is really difficult to, um, you know, continue through this kind of process where, you know, it seems like this never-ending cycle. But things are getting better. But coronavirus once again claims another event that we were all looking forward to and that brings me to my guest today i have marissa and jemmy on who is one of the leading voices in covering women's hockey in the media Uh, she does so on a freelance basis now but you can find her work at sportsnet at nbc sports she's been in the new york times so her bylines are everywhere and i brought marissa on to kind of talk a bit about the women's world championship which was canceled abruptly last week Uh, It was supposed to be held in Nova Scotia in early May, and with teams set to arrive in Nova Scotia to begin an eight-day quarantine period, the premier of the province decided that it was not the right time to have the tournament and abruptly pulled the approval. Um, According to the health officials in Nova Scotia at the time, they thought that the tournament could still happen given that it was going to be in a very tight bubble, but uh, it was not. And so we talked with Marissa about that and a lot of the implications of that, because as you see, this tournament that I'm at right now is going to happen. And I think the fact that the Women's World Championship, the top level of of women's hockey, the pinnacle of any year on the women's hockey calendar, and the fact that last year's was also canceled, um, it, it leaves a sour taste in a lot of people's mouth when it comes to uh, you know, equality and trying to make sure that everybody has the same opportunities. Now, there's a lot of complicating factors that made this the way that it is. But I wanted to have Marissa on just offer the perspective from how the players are feeling, what this means for Olympic preparation. Now, the IHF has vowed to find another time and another, you know, to, to do this event in the summer when hopefully things are a little bit better. Uh, but it really, it, it doesn't. You know, the fact that there was no backup plan is something that I know that a lot of people have complained about and have, have, have rightly been up frustrated about. But it's, you know, these events are so difficult to put on in the best of circumstances and to have the added COVID element. There's a whole mess of infrastructure and expenses that come with it. And I think you have to be willing, if you're gonna pay those expenses for men's tournaments, you have to do that for the women's tournaments. And you should do it anyway. But that's what we'll have Marissa on to talk more about, because I think she's got some really great insight into the perception and also the the feeling around women's hockey right now in what has been a, a at times, challenging season in uh, in women's hockey. So we have Marissa coming up in a second. But before we get to that interview, I did want to mention, please follow us on Hockey TV for this tournament, uh, the the World Men's Under 18. You can go to HockeyTV.com and and Get a subscription to uh put this uh to to watch the tournament it's the most important draft event i'll talk more about that after we're done here and also please subscribe to hockey sense with chris peters that's hockey sense.substack.com that is the engine that drives the media bus for me Um, the more subscribers that i have for that the less i have to rely on potentially bringing advertisements to this podcast and other things like that also if you have not yet please subscribe to this podcast Please like it, rate it, review it, wherever you get your podcasts, make sure that we're moving up the charts on all of those. But without further ado, I'm going to send it over to my interview with Marissa and Jemmy. Well, I'm very pleased to be joined by a person that has become one of the leading voices in women's hockey and really women's sports at large you can catch her writing all over the internet she is marissa and jemmy and marissa thank you so much for joining talking hockey sense this week
1: yeah thanks for having me on
0: all right well it's been it's been a week we'll we'll put it that way it's been it's been it's it's been a year i mean really it's it's not been a great year on a number of fronts for women's hockey but certainly the most disappointing news comes as we learned this week that the women's world championship was abruptly canceled uh, just weeks before it was supposed to begin days before teams were supposed to arrive and hockey Canada was about to announce their final roster. And, you know, based on everything that we've heard and, and all the statements that have been put out and everything else, this was a, a decision by the Nova Scotia Premier to cancel the tournament. Um, it wasn't the double IHF. It wasn't hockey Canada, but it also calls into question, as we've seen from many of the players that have, you know, raised their voices and, and, and try to express their frustration that, you know, there really wasn't a plan B. I mean, where, where do you kind of lay the blame at, at this point? Now, I, I don't know if I want to start it that way, but just, I mean, how, how much of a, of a, of a disappointment is this? And I mean, you can, you can talk about all the different things that have happened to to, to the women's national team programs over these last few years, this would, you know, essentially be a lost tournament again in two years. And obviously with the Olympics coming up, I mean, this is a massive, uh, massive disappointment on so many fronts.
1: Yeah. And first of all, like, I don't blame anyone prioritizing health and safety. Like we haven't seen enough of that in sports. And there's a whole discussion to be had about whether sports should be happening or not and what capacity mm-hmm. and all that. So I don't blame Nova Scotia for prioritizing your safety. The fact that this happened 15 days ahead of time and there was really no warning and players were like literally on the ice practicing isolating for so long it's disappointing that they waited for this long. Um, and that I mean, and again, like I, I don't want to put a lot of blame on anyone prioritizing health and safety so then you look at the IIHF and again while this wasn't their choice, we have seen them be proactive in the past the u 18 boys tournament in Texas. Um, they projected um, issues in Michigan back in February, and they were able to relocate it. So the fact that those discussions didn't happen, and if they did, no one's been aware of them. The players certainly don't feel like it happened. So communication to them hasn't been great either. Um, but yeah, it, it's just disappointing that it hasn't been prioritized. And Maybe if it hadn't happened before, maybe if the boys and men's events weren't really forced to happen, maybe mm-hmm. there wouldn't be the sense of women being uh, not prioritized again, not being taken seriously because we saw the world junior um, men's in, um, in Edmonton, that was really forced where you had teams like flying together from Europe and like all sorts of things that would kind of raise your eyebrows back in December when protocols were even uh, more of an issue. So you see things like that happen and you see how the IIHF really has made men's and boys hockey happen. And we've seen, like I tweeted the other day, we haven't had an international women's hockey event since before the PWHPA was created. And that really makes you think they're just not prioritizing it when you see all these men's and boys events happening. So it, it's disappointing in AdSense. And again, it's a slippery slope because there can be a whole discussion to be had about whether that should be happening in the first place and events and all that, even if it's bubbled or not. But when boys and men's hockey events are happening and women's aren't, you really do have to question what's going on there.
0: Yeah, I I, I think that's certainly I mean, the, the optics of it are, are awful. I mean, really it, you know, and, and and I think the you know, Hockey Canada certainly has some kind of responsibility here as well. I mean, basically, you know, with what they, what they did with, with, with keeping it in Nova Scotia, I mean, really, you know, part of it was Nova Scotia kept saying, it's going to be fine. We're going to be fine. We're going to have it. You know, Hockey Canada said that they, they at five o'clock in the morning of that day, they, the tournament was on and by seven thirty five it was off. And, but the other thing is, is like, it's no surprise to anybody that, the Canadian Maritimes had such strict protocols. It's been that way the entire pandemic. They, you couldn't come or go in those places. They, you know, they were barely able to have, uh, you know, certain events. The QMJHL has had many shutdowns over the course of the season, and yeah, so you know, it was it was kind of a precarious place to have it. There wasn't necessarily, you know, a great alternative, but there were probably alternatives that if they did it months enough in advance because it is a big event to move they probably could have made it happen i think the other thing that's that's especially you know disappointing here that came out of all this is that the health officials in nova scotia were generally pretty okay with this happening they felt that it was going to be uh that the protocols were such that they would be able to have the event so i mean the other thing too is so you you just kind of wonder you know where that decision ultimately came from when it's not driven by the health officials. So that was the other thing that was especially disappointing. And, and one of the things that we, we saw was a lot of the women were talking about the different things that they've been doing throughout the season. I, I wonder if you could offer a little bit of insight in terms of the structure of the season for national team players because of the fact that you know some of them were playing, the Americans had their PWHPA events that they were, they were able to actually get underway um that it wasn't so necessarily for the canadians and and so there was a lot of things that they had to do on their own so what what has the process been like to even prepare for this event that's now not going to happen
1: yeah and i mean just to go back to canada for a second too like the canadian players haven't really had any chance to play anywhere so they're at a distinct competitive disadvantage too which is an entire different discussion as well because they haven't Mm -hmm. been able to get on the ice for the pwhpa or anything um but yeah so the american players have basically been on the ice since like the fall for the most part between um there were some pwhpa events in new hampshire where there were some national team players and the events in tampa in january and i believe early february as well or at least the end of january they had a couple different events in tampa and then the dream gap tour started and they had the four games so far between new jersey new york and the chicago events the st louis event got canceled 10 days after they had their invite camp where they brought in i I think it was like 46 47 players Um, And then they had their roster cuts. They announced their roster uh, pretty recently. And then they had this other camp going on and they were in Maine. They were actually going to take a bus up to uh, Nova Scotia compared to everyone else flying in or other than team Canada actually being on location there. Um, But yeah, I mean, we saw some of the players tweet like how much they were isolating and everything going on there. And that's one thing that I've thought about these past couple of days since the news came down of they're going to have to do this again, no matter where they have the event. Um, especially if they keep it in Canada because they've been a lot more stricter than uh, the U.S. has been certainly. So um, that's a lot to ask these players to do this twice, um, especially sacrificing other parts of their hockey career. Some of them are coaches or um, have other aspects or other things to worry about too. So it's a huge ask and international players too, to ask them to do that again um, and to go through everything that it takes to get over uh, to North America. So um yeah it's just it's disappointing all around because how much does go into it and that's again why you would have hoped they would have had some sort of a warning before 15 days before the tournament starts and no one's gonna like take the blame themselves ever so i'm not sure we're ever gonna really know who made the exact call because like you said if the health and safety officials are saying it's fine and you look at the events and sports that have happened and again there's a whole ethical discussion to be had about what should and shouldn't be happening but you look at what was planned out here, you look at the numbers in Nova Scotia and you would think this would be safer than a lot of other events that have happened in sports across the last year. And even IAHF tournaments, like you look at a tournament in Texas and you can question like what's going on there too. Yeah. Um, so it's just disappointing all around. And I feel like we really don't have any more answers than we did the day this was announced.
0: Yeah, it's very very true. I mean, there, there's a lot of just kind of finger pointing and, and and things like that. But I mean, you know, in the end, the people that are most negatively affected by this are the players, the coaches, and you know, everybody that's taking their time to to prepare for this. And you know, they think about the teams that are that were coming overseas that were, you know, essentially ready to board planes that you know the mm-hmm. next day to get over here. And yeah, now they 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 miss that opportunity. Not only so so we, we lose it from that perspective, but this is also obviously the last world championship heading into the Olympics. And I mean, this tournament matters for things like, you know, qualifying seating, but also for the U S and Canada really key key opportunities to evaluate players. You think about, you know, people, Aaron Frankel getting an opportunity after a great season at Northeastern Abby rock, making the senior national team, like for, for the U S and certainly other players that, that were in the mix for Canada, that where this is their opportunity to showcase themselves for Olympic spots which is lost, which is why, you know, I think that there's going to continue to be efforts to do this. And as you mentioned, having to ask them to go through the isolation period again, and not only that training and ramping up for, you know, it's not like when, when they train, it's just like, they do the same thing all the time. There's actually a process to it, to getting to the peak, you know, your peak performance at the right time. So, you know, I, I guess in terms of what this means kind of for the Olympic year, and I didn't even get into the the fact that, you know, both of these, the U S and Canada are supposed to centralize at some point next season. Mm Um, you know, I mean, what, what do you think this means? And just in terms of how this impacts Olympic prep and and where they kind of have to go from here. Um, and then, you know, if, if they do move the tournament, you know, we're, we're talking July or August, it sounds like, I mean, does that even, how does that work when you're going to have to play the Olympics in, you know, a few months down the road?
1: Yeah. I mean, we'll see how seriously the IIHF takes this because they've taken a lot of criticism and a lot of people have pointed out like, oh, well, it's not your fault. Nova Scotia said this or whatever. Well, they have an opportunity now to show they are prioritizing this because yes. it simply has to happen. Like you can't go in, like last year, we all understand everything got canceled or most everything got canceled or postponed. This was, it was scheduled last year at the peak of understanding like what COVID was and, Uh, fans weren't at buildings and the NHL, everything was happening at once. So like you get it, but this year we're in a completely different position. And again, we can talk until we're blue in the face about if sports should be happening and on what scale, but the reality is they are. And the reality is that women's sports in particular have been left behind several times here, especially women's hockey. Um, and the IIHF, like they have to do something about it. Otherwise for, from their perspective, they're going to lose all total faith, all, every all trust from the players from women's hockey uh supporters executives everyone because if they don't prioritize it's going into an olympic year well then i guess we kind of know what their priorities really are then um, right c- it just has to happen like you can't go into an olympic year and, and have and not have this event because like you said there are qualifiers like there are teams up and coming uh, in, in usa and canada it's important especially for canada their players have not really been on the ice They've barely had any chance to compete, if at all. Um, and then you look at other countries as well, like Finland's up and coming. Um, Switzerland has some really good players. Um, Czech Republic has some really good players. Um, they're losing years of development too now. Um, and we, we see what happened in women's worlds a couple of years ago was Finland up and coming and everything like how, how stalled is the international game going to be because of these stoppages and stuff like that. And again, to an extent they had to happen. Like we are in the middle of a global pandemic. There are things that are just going to happen. But again, when they've prioritized making sure men's and boys hockey has really not missed a beat for more than a, a few months, and now we're two years behind in women's hockey, it, it, it's just a problem and it has to be addressed. So like, I can't imagine it not happening in some capacity because it just has to. Um, and if it doesn't, I wouldn't be surprised to see players get together on their own. We've seen um, they kind of have that initiative already. Uh, with was the PWHPA existing as it is, um, the SDHL players, which is the elite um, European women's league. They have some players associated with the PWHPA as well. So I like, I think the players are going to get a chance to be on the ice. It's just up to the IIHF to be a part of that and show that, that they are going to take it seriously.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's the point about the potential for stalling the international game as a whole, just, just as other countries are starting to show improvement and doing the things that, you know, I think everybody's wanted to see in women's hockey so that it's not the two horse race all the time. Um, you know, and obviously Finland had an opportunity the last time there was a wor- women's world championship, mm-hmm. maybe they won, <laughs> you know, like you're in a, we're not, but USA actually, um, you ask. yeah, I know exactly. So, um, but you know, I mean, that's, it's, it's, you know, there's no, no chance to build off of that, that momentum. And, and, you know, as you mentioned, the other thing, you know, the, the double IHF never even attempted the women's world under 18s. They just outright yep. canceled it. And that was the only top level division one tournament that was completely canceled without a second thought. So, um, so yeah, so I mean, there's, there's a lot of different hits there. And I think that you make a great point. And I think what we've also seen really since, you know, the boycott um, for uh, prior to the 2017 world championship, the, you know, the women's hockey players have figured out how to advocate for themselves effectively. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And I think that that's, you know, it's unfortunate that it has to come to that point, but we've seen so many statements put out and I'm just, you know, the strength of those statements and, and the frustration that they're able to, to express I wish it didn't have to be that way, but I think that if there's one thing that, and I'm not saying this is a positive for the women's world championship being canceled. I'm just saying that in general, I think that they're creating a lot of their own momentum now. I mean, and it does feel like even in this crazy in this crazy season where there have been so many hits, I do feel like the, the, mo- the momentum for women's hockey and women's sports in general has continued to build throughout the pandemic. We saw it with the WNBA bubble. We saw it through, um, you know, obviously the, the NWHL had stopped Then they, they managed to get it back together and start, you know, we, we did have a successful NCAA women's uh, tournament where, you know, that they got all their games off in that tournament. And then also, um, you know, there were, there've been other events throughout the year, where, you know, we've seen the, the importance. So I, I mean, since you cover women's sports so much, I mean, when did you kind of notice the shift where, where the women were really starting to take charge of, you know, advocating for themselves and not only just not that they advocated for themselves when people were starting to listen?
1: A lot of the listening seems to be extremely recent. Like you even look hmm. back to a couple of weeks ago when, um, they weren't going to have any broadcast for the first few rounds of the NCAA volleyball tournament. And right. people actually cared that there were complaints about that. If we were a couple of years ago, I know like people would have been like, Oh, well, who cares? And that would have been that. But, um, and, and then we saw everything that happened with the NCAA women's basketball bubble in San Antonio too. Um, right. Just the fact that these are stories. Now there was a story um, today in the Washington post about college softball and baseball, how they get the same exact ratings and the women's softball players weren't even given like toilets or bathrooms until 11 years ago. Um, so like these things aren't new. It's just people in the mainstream are either writing about it or reading about it or taking it more seriously. Why that is, I don't know. Um, I give a lot of credit to some of the, um, the momentum to the WNBA in particular, because the people associated in that league have really advocated for women and for all genders to just be taken more seriously and to be treated as equals where um, I, I don't think that would have happened across sports not for the WNBA really uh, kind of pushing that agenda. So I think they deserve a lot of credit for all the sports, um, for all women's sports kind of progressing here from a hockey perspective, you can definitely go back to the boycott in 2017 as like kind of the defining moment for like women's hockey is taking itself seriously and it's investing in itself. And that comes from the players. And we've seen them be advocates for themselves times and time again, that's why the pwhpa exists and all that um and it really shouldn't like have to be that way because you would think the iihf like it's their job to grow the women's game right so if it's not succeeding that's kind of on them so like you can't just point and i know like this isn't a point but you see people all the time point to be like oh well the men make revenue or whatever like well if the women aren't that's kind of an indictment on the iihf not doing their job either um so i mean just to carry it like to what's happening right now like all these statements from the players, you see them all mentioning the IIHF and their disappointment in them. So I think we have to take that seriously if that's how they feel. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And they have more insight on that than anyone else would because uh, they're dealing with them on a daily basis leading up to Worlds and stuff like that. So um, yeah, I mean, there's definitely been a shift um, as far as women's athletes uh, being taken seriously and being heard. Um, and in hockey, I feel like hockey's a little bit behind some of the other sports like basketball or soccer or even softball to an extent. Um, but, it, and that's for a variety of different reasons within the culture of hockey, women's hockey in its own right. But yeah, the players have been forced to advocate for themselves for a while in a way where they really shouldn't have to be. But it's the reason why I feel like the tournament or some form of it will happen in the end is because of trust I have in the players more than I do any of the associations involved with them.
0: Right, yeah, I, I think there's there's no way that they're they're going to allow it to, to go this way. And we should say too, it, it, you know, at least initial reports suggest that the, the the Dallas Stars may have expressed interest in in having the event um, in Texas. You know, and, I, and the, the interesting thing, one of the other discussions that we kind of had, uh, you know, about the pandemic is, you know, we're moving events to places where there's looser restrictions. And I mean, mm-hmm. I think that you know, you look at, there's been a lot of different events that have been kind of dotting the South and, and, you know, the Southeastern U S and, you know, I think there still remains. The question is just because we can, should we, you know, so, I mean, like that's the other thing, but I do think I agree completely. If we're going to have the other events, we have to have the women's world championship. And I, and if it happens in Texas, I, you know, I think that they're, they're going to have the infrastructure in place. From the u18 worlds which is going to follow a similar format and have similar amount of hotel room nights and all those other things that that you need and yeah my hope is that that they get it done And i agree with you that i think the women will um be the ones to drive this and you know again they shouldn't have to be but they're going they, they have they found their voices and they're very strong voices and they have have a lot of people that are in their corner to make this i i i mean it was just you know kind of universal condemnation in the mainstream of of what happened to them in this tournament situation um so i mean i think that's progress in some in some small twisted way but here we are so yeah it's um, progress yeah.
1: people weren't just posting who cares or not writing about it at all i guess
0: yeah yeah ex- exactly like yeah that's that's what i mean when it's a, a twisted amount of progress so um but yeah so so I guess, you know, moving on from this, we'll, we'll, we'll obviously hope that the, the Women's World Championship happens, and, and certainly the Olympics are going to, you know, it's the most important showcase, and now there's a whole other set of things, you know, I, I wasn't really planning to talk about this, but, you know, one thing that I think we're at least concerned about now is, will there be a 2022 Olympics in Beijing with so many countries threatening to boycott at this point, which is completely out of anybody's hands, and it's all in the politicians' hands, but I mean, that's a whole other ball of wax that we, that we don't have to get into, but it's worth mentioning just because everything in this world is fraught right now. And that's yet another thing to, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll just hope for the best on that. But, you know, I did want to mention the, op, the, the things that we saw this season that were positive as well. And, and we had more women's coverage on TV. You were covering women's hockey for NBC Sports and Sportsnet at the same time you've done stories for the New York Times. And yeah, I think that there is a, a, a growing appetite for content. I think the appetite's really been there. And certainly it's it's all about having the opportunity. But I mean, we, we had NWHL playoffs on, on NBC Sports Network. We've had PWHPA events on TV. How much do you think that that is going to aid the process? And I mean, for me, it's about time that we see that more where it's not just the national team stuff. Um, but yeah, I mean, we're, what did you kind of think about this season as a whole in terms of the positives that did come out of so many other things that that weren't so positive.
1: Yeah, I mean, the coverage is always good. And like you said, like the appetite has been there. It's just either a disbelief or a reluctance to believe that the appetite is there. That has prevented um, women's sports in general from getting mainstream attention. And that's changing because there's more of an outcry for it. There's more of just public displays of wanting to see it. Like we're, we're seeing WNBA ratings go up. We're seeing NWSL ratings go up. Um, The NWHL ratings were pretty good, given the fact that it was the first time on TV and they were going up against NCAA women's basketball, which have the same audience. A lot of people who watch one women's sports watch the others, too. That's a very similar audience. Um, So it's good news all around um, because we see this in general in sports. Uh, We see men's leagues that have failed. Like you look at the XFL, you look at how many spring football leagues can we have that have a proven track (laughs) record of failing and investors continuously putting money into that while calling women's sports a risk. That has to end at some point. That's when there will be progress when people are not betting on women because they're not a risk, you have to invest in them. Um, and just invest in sports that aren't men's sports um, constantly because we're, we're seeing uh, every single time there is an investment, there is a success, but there have been so few investments that it's tough to see that. Um, so for women's hockey we're starting to see a bit more of an investment. And again, a lot of that is player driven. A lot of that is these players made a name for themselves by speaking out um, and, and to boycott and things like that. Like we're seeing a lot of progress directly relating to that. Um, as far as the NWHL goes, I think that uh, having a TV presence is great for them because while international women's hockey has always kind of been on television or at least in recent memory, it has been, and it does pretty well. they uh, most American North American sports fans want to follow their club teams. Um, that's where sometimes there can be a disconnect when you either don't have that club team or you don't have the regional pride, or I think something that hurts women's sports that don't get talked about that much. And in general, I guess like any, uh, non-legacy sports is the lack of history. Like you can go back and watch the Boston Bruins and go look up history from the sixties. You can't do that with Boston pride, but now right. you can look back from year seven to year one and you kind of can build on that history and now you have lore and you have narratives and stuff like that. And that's only really going to help. And I think having something like that in the NWHL, helps the overall growth at a sport because you do have people who live in Boston, who live in Buffalo, Minnesota, whatever, who can look back and be like, Oh, three years ago, the team was here and we signed these players and all this and making progress. And you can have a comparable to an NHL team or any other men's sports league that does have that history and lore. So I think that's really important for women's sports in general. I think that's why the WNBA succeeds right now, because you can look back and be like, like Candace Parker changing teams. Like that's a dramatic event in the league where 20 right. years ago, it's not. Um, so I think women's hockey getting to that point is huge, and it happens with consistency and having seasons. Um, and I think that's why they were so um, uh, they they really wanted to make sure the season happened.
0: Yeah, and it, it is a good thing that it did. I mean, obviously there was the the issue in Lake Placid where you know we we everything was going fine, and then it wasn't. Uh, uh, but you know there was they they did manage to finish the season. I mean, I think that's that's really that's the story to hold on to. I think is just that. Amid all that, they found a way to get it done, got the games on TV, and in the end, I think, you know, did it did something very good for the long-term health of the league. And and you know, the other thing that the NWHL has done exceptionally well and has seen incredible growth in is, is you know using Twitch as a partner for broadcasting and and webcasting and and streaming and everything. And I, you know, that's the numbers from those platforms are incredible. Um and, and so I think that there's there's proof of concept in what, what's, what's been happening. But, you know, this, this was an interesting year for the WHL on a number of fronts too, you know, like they they had a, you know, senior leadership change, um, mm-hmm. tied is in there now. Um, you know, after everything that she's kind of had to go through and in, in, in a less than ideal circumstances, how do you think, you know, she has done so far in her leadership of the league and, and, and positioning it for the future?
1: Yeah, there's definitely some goods and, um, some not so good so far. Yeah. Um, it's a tough job to take on to become a commissioner of a a growing women's sports league in the middle of a pandemic. We've seen so many women's leagues go in different directions. You look at national pro fast pitch that basically just isn't happening now. Like um, because players are preparing for the Olympics last year got canceled and you wonder like, what does pro softball look like in the future where, uh, and you have um, the women's professional lacrosse league went under and now they're a part of athletes unlimited. Um, So women's sports during the pandemic have gone in very different ways and the NWHL has for better or for worse just stuck around. Um, And and, I mean, you have the PWHPA with like, one thing that's always impressed me about the NWHL before tie and currently is that the audience doesn't really seem to care that the Hillary Knights aren't there. Um, Mm, like, mm -hmm. and you, you have a lot of fans who watch both. Like, I don't know many people who will watch the NWHL and won't watch the PWHPA or vice versa. The appetite is just there for women's hockey as a whole. And again, one of the reasons I think the NWHL is important is because sometimes like there can be a disconnect, like you're watching these great players, but what are they playing for? Um, and I know the PWHPA has the ultimate goal of having a different type of league and, having something at least similar to regional markets and all that. But one of the reasons the NWHL does have a place is you're going to a Boston pride game. You don't really care. I mean, you do care who's wearing the Jersey because you have Jillian Dempsey, the captain from Winthrop, who's a teacher at Massachusetts and all that. Like you can like pick your narrative of whatever player you want, but it doesn't matter so much because you're there at the game. You're watching your team. Um, It doesn't really matter that Brianna Decker isn't there. Um, so I think that's something that the NWHL deserves some credit for is not panicking or folding under that pressure because they have continued to um, progress and to have uh, better treatment and all that and the Players Association did a pretty good job. Um, Lake Placid obviously like that's a black mark on everyone because that was just a complete failure all around. Um, It is a good thing in the long term they did come back they got those games on TV but just the health and safety protocols, the more we learn about it. I did some reporting on it for the New York Times. We see the reports that um, ORDA, um, they still owe Orta the Olympic um, Committee up in um, Lake Placid. They still owe them money for a d- deposit for it going wrong. You see that their medical provider has pulled out. We don't know why, but like connect the dots. Um, so those are some concerns going forward. And it's definitely going to be a challenge for Teminia to restore some of that trust. Because when you have people who don't trust the nwhl in the first place this season didn't help and you do have that contention of people who don't have that trust for one reason or another and some of them are extremely valid um there are some concerns that do need to be addressed and so far some of the approaches seem to be sweeping that under the rug from a pr standpoint so we'll see if that continues to improve as the new comms team gets their feet under them and uh they just continue to deal with um everything heading their way but yeah, they've had to endure a lot and they're still here and the audience is growing and the audience enjoys the hockey and the players who are there and the players do a great job of marketing themselves and uh, being endearing for that audience. So definitely a challenge uh, due to a pandemic, just being a growing sports league leadership changes at PWHPA. They have a lot of challenges thrown their way and they haven't been deterred yet. So we'll see uh, how that keeps going for them.
0: Yeah. It's, it's always been amazing to me just to see the league continue to you know, defy the odds, just, you know, with the PWHPA and losing those players. And as you mentioned, it seems like the fans are just simply, they just stayed. And I think that's really, that's, that's really important for the league. It's such a good sign for just the brand of those teams of those uh, of the league itself that, uh, you know, they have their dedicated fans and now, you know, that it continues to exist more and more people will, will learn more and more about it. Um, You know, also, you know, I guess, you know, Danny Ryland Kearney stepped away from the league, you know, had the, had the guts to, to, to do it. <laughs> you know, like, I mean, like put it, put it all on the line. Um, you know, ultimately, what do you think? I, I feel like for a lot of people in women's hockey, she's going to have a complicated legacy. What do you think her legacy is going to be like?
1: Just from a pure like sports league standpoint, what she did was incredible. Um, you look at how many startup sports leagues there are, especially in potentially saturated markets. Like there's not a ton of women's hockey, but there's a lot of hockey. Um, and she was still able to make a league stay. Like I've covered a lot of lacrosse over the years and that's really hard to do. Um, mm-hmm. we've seen major league lacrosse last 20 years and then they succumb to the PLL in the way the NWHL has not to the PWHPA or CWHL or anything else. We just saw the CWHL. Um, they folded a couple of years ago, like it's incredibly hard, especially now more than ever, to have a, a professional sports league with staying power. Um, and especially in women's sports, too, how many attempts have we seen at women's sports leagues where they just don't take off? Like you look at women's lacrosse the past two years, and we've seen two attempts at leagues, and none of them have worked out too well. And we'll see how Athletes Unlimited does in a completely different, reimagined format for what a sports league can be. And so far, their volleyball league looked tremendous. Um, It's really hard to do. And I mean, I think it shouldn't get lost that she did it. And I also think it shouldn't get lost that um, before the NWHL existed, no one was getting paid to play women's hockey. And now a lot of people are Um, whether that be the NWHL or the PWHPA continuing to push that conversation. And for a time the CWHL began paying their players. And that doesn't happen if the NWHL doesn't exist. So no matter what feelings are towards Danny towards the NWHL or any of it, which are all valid one way or another, like, Um, her and the NWHL have pushed that conversation to where it's at now. So I think sometimes it gets lost a little bit in the, um, in our, um, uh, like our desire to have polarizing figures or to, uh, polarize people in in our own right. But, um, women's hockey is in a place where 10 years ago, I don't think anyone would have believed that it's at the point it's at now at a pro level. And I don't think, I think if it were status quo and if the NWHL didn't come around, I don't think much would have progressed.
0: I, I think you're exactly right, and that is that is ultimately, I think the 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 most important point is that this it it didn't exist until somebody decided it should, and and then did it. You know, I mean, like that's the that's the amazing that has always been the amazing thing to me about you know Danny's what she did, and and now we're in a position where you know things are things have been fractured, things have been tense at times. Um, you know, what, what do you think is the path forward now that we've seen? Obviously, the, the NWHL has no plans to go anywhere, you know, in terms of, you know, just kind of sacrificing itself at the feet of, of the wishes of, of, of having the NHL get involved. The NHL hasn't really moved towards getting involved. Um, but, you know, I, I mean, what do you see as the best path forward? Or is there a best path forward for <laughs> women's professional hockey at, at this point? Or is this just kind of the way that, it's going to be until, you know, somebody decides to, to do something different.
1: I, I feel like I've asked myself this question every day for like three or four years and um, <laughs> yeah. if I knew the answer, maybe I'd be running it. Um, but it, it, it's so complicated because you have, it, I don't think there's any real bad guy here. I think that everyone wants the same thing in the end and just has different ideas of how to get there. Um, and I mean, I don't know what the best way to get there is. I do like the franchise model the NWHL has. Like I said, I think having that lore is really important and having that narrative history. I think that's what grows sports leagues. Like I've worked, I mean, I, I don't think people who only deal with the legacy sports really understand how difficult it is to make a league stay. Like you look at the arena football league that had like what a 20 year run and now it's gone. You look at the right. national lacrosse leagues and the up and downs it had and it's in a pretty good place now. You look at how long it's taken major league soccer to get to where it is. And that doesn't happen if you don't have that history behind it. And the NWHL is just starting to build that in a way that no one else is right now. And um, I I think this Olympic cycle is gonna be important because the biggest voices in the PWHPA are those Olympic players who are a part of that boycott too. And we've already seen some of them start to retire. What happens when they're not there anymore? What happens to the PWHPA during the Olympics? Are they going to prioritize your non-Olympic players? Um, Because we've seen some of them get pushed to the wayside a little bit. I don't know if that's on purpose or not, but I am interested to see how they do uh, make space for those non-Olympic players. Um, who don't want to go to the nwhl for one reason or another um so this next year is going to be really important because we're going to see what does the pwhpa do from here because i think the fall's kind of in their court the nwhl doesn't intend on changing anything and like from from the perspective of bowing to the pwhpa like they shouldn't change anything like it's fine for them they have their own issues to work out and their own changes to make internally but it has nothing to do with whatever the pwhpa is doing so i think they're full steam ahead and now it's up to where does the pw go from here because like you said i don't think the nhl has any intent to get involved because they simply would have um they have had years of doing this they had before the cwhl before the nwhl when they were going at each other when the cwhl folded when the pwhpa formed there were a lot of points in history they could have stepped in they chose not to instead we've seen teams like the devils and sabers pull their support only for other teams like the Rangers to support the PW and the NW, the Bruins to partner um, with the pride. Um, We've seen teams kind of do it on their own accord, but we haven't seen any uniform um, NHL uh, statement or anything like that because they would, if they wanted to, and that's not really an indictment on them. It's not necessarily their responsibility to either. Um, And the NWHL has done this on their own. So I'm not sure the NHL is needed to step in anyways. So again we'll have to see where the PW goes from here it's kind of up to how far they want to take this like what um what they really want to go for do they want to be their own league do they want to do it regardless of the NHL when I spoke with Jaina Hefford a few weeks ago for Sportsnet she did mention there is a path forward without the NHL too so I, I'm, I'm wondering what does that look like for them because I think in the end they're going to have to make a decision around that at some point so this this next year is going to be really important and I mean I've I've spent a lot of time guessing and it's never been right. So who's to say?
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, it it is, it's complicated, but I mean, there's, there's momentum in some, in some, some way or another, that I, that I feel like we're going to, we're going to get a solution. I completely agree. This, this Olympic cycle is, is crucial. We're, you know, we're supposed to have a lot of games between the U S and Canada. If, if the pandemic kind of allows it, you know, where, where we have it throughout the year li- leading up to the Olympics and those always do really well on TV mm-hmm. and, and that, that only enhances those voices of those players that, that you've kind of mentioned. And so, you know, they're going to have a lot of, a lot of pull in terms of, you know, what they do. And, Uh, It certainly seems like a a, a positive, another positive Olympic event where they've had, you know, just tremendous ratings for the last several gold medal games. You know, that's, that's something to build off of. And maybe, you know, finally we can, everything reaches the crescendo at that point. Um, So, yeah, so it's been, it's been an interesting, it's been an interesting year as, as we see Uh, it's, it's been a tough year at times, but you know, I think one of the things that that has been uh, fun for me to watch from afar is to see a, a friend have success. And you know, Marissa, you've had a, a, a winding career similar to similar to me, where we're just like you know, we're, we're we're in a place for a bit, and then we're we're doing something else. And obviously, always freelancing, always hustling. Um, but you have been you have had bylines just about everywhere. You mentioned New York Times, Sportsnet, NBC Sports, FiveThirtyEight, uh, various papers, and and other things. I mean. You know, you, you live the freelance life now and it's, it's, it's always, you know, I think people always see the, it doesn't necessarily look difficult because they see the finished product. They're like, Oh, there's a lot that goes into it. I mean, what is, what is your, uh, normal week? Like as a, as a freelance (laughs) writer and it, well, there is, I should say that that's a terrible question because there is no (laughs) such thing as the normal week for a freelancer, but what let's just go, you know, what, what have been some of your busiest weeks? Like in this last couple of months?
1: Yeah, I mean, the whole NWHL like classic tournament, that was every day. So that was a lot. And then I just did the um, NCAA Women's Basketball Tournament for the New York Times. And that was a lot. But um, I like being busy. I mean, I was on a beat at the Boston Herald. I loved being the Bruins writer. It was one of the worst days of my life, having that taken away from me due to the pandemic or whatever restrictions they had. Um, So it's been extremely tough just not having that because I love covering hockey. I love being a beat reporter. I'd love to do it again. Um, But I've been pretty lucky just in the sense of I freelanced before I got to the Herald. So I kind of had a blueprint of I know how to pitch. I know how to sell stories. Um, I love writing stories that other people aren't doing yet. So I feel like that's always been an advantage of I'm I'm happy to write about volleyball or water polo or bowling or whatever anyone else hasn't found yet, because I think there are so many interesting stories that don't get covered. Um, Again, like so many people who focus just on the legacy sports or the big four or, uh, the big college sports don't hear about so many incredible stories. So I really get excited to tell those and to be a part of them. So, um, I've been lucky that there've been a lot of editors and a lot of, uh, places who have been willing to listen and to work with me. And, um, one of the positives I've taken out of it is working with so many amazing editors and learning from all of them and so many different styles at so many places. And I feel like I'm a better writer than I was a year ago, or even a few months ago because of those experiences. So, um, Hopefully a busy summer still. I'm trying to do a lot of WNBA stuff, off-season hockey stuff, NHL playoffs coming up, uh, college lacrosse playoffs coming up, uh, Olympics, obviously, uh, college softball, World Series. So there's always a lot going on. And um, that's one great thing about being a sports writer is there's always something happening. Even last year when everything was on pause, there were a lot of stories to tell still. So um, yeah, so I'm kind of writing everywhere. And there, there there are no two days that are exactly the same other than, Every day, there's something in women's hockey happening that takes all my attention away from everything else. That's the only <laughs> consistency; is it's literally always something.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean your your work is just like prolific. I mean, I've, I'm always amazed that you know that I was like, you know, there were. I think there was a week there where I was like, here's here's one on Sportsnet, here's one on the New York Times, here's one on Five Thirty Eight. You know, I I just I I wonder, you know, since you do cover such a wide range of things how do you, how do the ideas come to you? I mean, I, obviously you've, you've developed a lot of great contacts all over sports, but how, how have you kind of developed those, the, get those ideas and, and be able to tell those stories that, that uh, people aren't able to find and, and without giving away your secrets, but just more of uh, uh you know, just what you've done to, to be able to find those stories that you think are worth telling.
1: There are no secrets. Um, I just watch too many sports for the most part. I mean, I watch hockey every night. So like NHL, NWHL, PWHPA, college hockey, like I just watch those and I care about it. And then women's basketball, I really didn't follow that much women's basketball until more recently And the New York times wanted me to be in that role a little bit more and I got more involved and I really enjoyed it. And now I really want to be very into the WNBA. So Uh, Some things just kind of happen and other things. Like I watch college volleyball. I watch college softball. um, I I watch pro lacrosse. So like some of that's just a factor of I'm watching a game and I think of something. And then I also, I do a lot of research too. Like I will check out every so often, like who are the league leaders in like college soccer or whatever, and see like, who's interesting here. Like is the best goalie in the country. Does she have an interesting story or whatever? So I do a lot of research where um i I just take a look at things it's like oh i haven't heard about this in a while or i wonder what's going on or some of it's just questions like i did a story for sf gate in san francisco um i wrote it in november i don't think it went up till january about uh companion ponies and horse racing just because for years i've wondered like what is their life like so I, i i pitched it to a few places and they took it so i just got to explore that or my first story was 538 was about um how do um what's recruiting like for uh, college kickers like how do you become a kicker what's what's it like being in such a niche world of you're one of only a few people who can do this like what's the competition like so I've wondered about that for years so some of it's just like refining ideas there are stories I'm working on right now that I've been thinking about for years and I don't even pitch them until the right words come to me because sometimes y- you have an idea but it's not a story yet so it's just kind of waiting for those ideas to become a story and One good thing about working with editors right now is sometimes I can just like mention something and be like, how do you refine this? And I get a lot of help to make things make more sense outside of my own head. So that's one great thing that's come with freelancing is sometimes I can just be like on the phone with one of my editors and be like, well, I'm thinking about this. And they can be like, okay, well, let's expand on that. Um, You don't always get that when you're on a beat or anything else. So I've just been, again, trying to use this opportunity to Um, find those stories more and and just do a better job reporting on them and expanding on them and and turning them into stories more than ideas.
0: Yeah, that's and it is that is a huge skill. I mean, it is not easy to do. And uh, yeah, the the breadth of your coverage has really been fun for me to to follow as as a reader, just somebody that likes to read things that I don't know. Like I like to read about things I don't know about. And you've had a lot of like the, the kicker story. I was like flabbergasted by, cause I was like, I had no idea it was that involved. And I, I think, I thought that was such a, such a phenomenal story. And, and although, you know, obviously just the, the, the professionalism and the, the care and the, the thoroughness that you cover you, women's hockey with, it, it is, it is a vital tool in a sport where that desperately needs that, especially now where there's so much uncertainty and people are constantly trying to figure it out. I think you're one of the people that can really break it down and make it understandable and also um informative, you know, just so that that we know what's going on. So, um I think I I think I speak for all of us when I say we really appreciate your work and what you've done. Thank and, you. Yeah, and 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 honestly too, I mean, you know, you did touch on it and we've we've been in the same boat where, you know, you you lose a job that you had no interest in losing, you know, it's no been, fun. It's not fun. It's not fun, but I think, you know, there's, there is a way to make the most of it. I mean, you know, do you feel now, I I guess we, we talked about all the good stuff of freelancing. I think (laughs) it's only fair to just so that people don't know. It's not, it it really isn't all sunshine and roses. I mean, what, what are some of the things that make it a little more difficult? Because you know, obviously when you're at the Herald, you, you have, there's, there's a pace to the season and everything, but now you're in a situation where it's like, I have to write a lot to, earn a living. So, yep. w- w- I mean, just maybe explain kind of that, that process and, and why, you know, you really can never pitch enough and you can never write enough. It, it, it always seems when you're a freelancer as, as, I've, as I've found myself.
1: Yeah. I mean, I get paranoid sometimes, like I'll finish a story and I'll be like, okay, but I don't have another one lined up. Does that mean I can buy groceries next week? Um, So definitely like, it can be really difficult in the sense of like, you don't have a salary, you don't know you're getting a paycheck. It all has to be you. So like, I'm like, I'm doing okay right now, but at the same time, I'm working double the hours I did on a beat and a beats already like working too many hours. Um, So the tough part there is like, even when you do get a break, you feel kind of guilty about it. So sometimes mm-hmm. like people will ask me like, Oh, well, how do you do it? Like, how do you do this much? And it's like, I literally feel like I have to, um, like what choice do I have? Or like when I, I started writing a week after I got laid off and people were like, Oh, don't you need more time? And it's like, I, I don't get that. I, I I can't take time. Like I need to like my rent didn't go down when I lost my job, like nothing changed. I, I still have to exist and do everything I need to do for myself and I have the skill. So it's the only thing I can really do is go out there and write and hope for the best and hope that enough people take my stories. So um, that's one of the reasons I take it seriously. Um, but again, like in the end to me, like I've just tried to make it a positive of like, okay, well, like I get to challenge myself. I have to find unique stories. Um, I, I freelanced before I went to the Herald. So I knew how to do it. And I feel like it made my Herald coverage good too, because I never really lost that pitching mentality anyways because I was covering women's hockey there and I had to sell every single week. Am I allowed to do this? And I had a fantastic editor there who really believed in me and let me really push those boundaries and really like, let me kind of go wild with what I wanted to do, like covering the Red Bull crash dice, like the downhill speed skating, like that came here. And I was like, yeah, I know I'm on a beat, but I just like, I haven't got out of the mindset of this is amazing. And I want to do something about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I feel like that part of my brain will never be turned off at this point anyways. So might as well go for it. Um, to me, the most challenging thing has just been the emotional part of like, I loved being on a beat. I loved covering the Bruins, covering a Stanley Cup run, a winter classic traveling and all that. So like, when the Bruins came back and I didn't, I didn't watch the first two games. Cause it was just like, it was really tough. Like it really hurt that like, this is still going on and I wasn't there for that long, but it really became a part of me. And I was really proud of being the Bruins writer and I still am that it happened. And I really hope to do something like that again someday because it meant more to me than I can describe. And I feel really lucky and fortunate. I've bounced back and I have these great bylines and I'm doing these great stories, but at the same time, like I'm never not going to be motivated to get back there because I really, really loved it.
0: Yeah. And you were really good at it too. And oh, thank you. Yeah. And that's, that's the, that's always the disappointing thing about our business is that, you know, the work, the quality of the work so seldom matters enough than the, than the number on the sheet, you know, like, and that's, and that's, that's the, that's the, the downside of it. But, uh, you know, I, I can vouch for you on that one. It, you know, it's just, it is, you know, it it is so hard to be a beat writer. And I thought that you brought a lot of unique and interesting stories to the beat. And also, and, and it comes from that, that freelance mentality where you have to, you have to be creative. You have to be different. You have to stand out. I think that's probably one of the best pieces of advice that, you know, I could, or you could give a, a student that's trying to get into journalism. It's like, you have to find a way to be different. You have to tell the stories that are not being told because, everybody else is telling the same stories, what, how do you stand out as somebody with, you know, maybe less experience or, you know, find a way to bring something to it. And I I think that the thing that that stands out about your work, Marissa, is you always bring your own thing to it and and the unique, the unique nature. And I'm I'm so glad that you have had the bylines. And I am among the many that believe that you should absolutely be back on a beat again. And I think, oh, thank you you you. You know, it, it is. It Let's is. Let's tell be, some
1: editors that. Yeah,
0: I know. I, I, I'm sure. Like, you know, hey, editors, if you're listening to this podcast, <laughs> hire Marissa. Um, but you know, I think the other thing too, like, you know, selfishly, if you do end up covering a beat. I feel like my my knowledge of of other things will go down like college kickers and um oh I'm not able to to do
1: just one thing at the Herald (laughs) I was on the women's hockey beat and college lacrosse too like I'm not able to just sit there on one thing
0: well that see and that I think see look at that editors there's even more reason (laughs) she she will she will write about anything but yeah but Marissa this was such a great conversation I really appreciate the insight that you offer and also you know I I hope that uh uh, people can, uh, can continue to follow your work. And, and you know, is there anything that, uh, that you have coming up or anything you want to plug in, and obviously give your, your Twitter handle a plug as well? So not only hire Marissa, but also follow Marissa.
1: Yeah, uh, my Twitter handle, at Marissa underscore and Jemmy, I tweet too much, so I'm sorry in advance. Um, upcoming stuff. Um, I have some cool Olympic stuff. I'm hoping soon on a few different places. I've been pitching it, so I'm sure some of those will work out. Um, <laughs> I have some WNBA stuff coming at 5:38. I just had a story go up this week about the second round and the players who dropped there. Um, some kind of similar stuff happening before the season and NHL playoff coverage. I'll have on NBC, and I'm sure there will be w- when there are Women's Worlds when they do happen. I'll have it on Sportsnet, and um, when PWHPA events come back, I'll have it over there too. So um, follow me on Twitter and, um, it's updating constantly.
0: Yeah, there will, there will never be a shortage of things for you to read when, when Marissa's, uh, Marissa's round. Marissa, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, I really appreciate it. And, uh, this, this has been so fun to do. So, uh, thanks again for, for joining Hawking Hockey Sense.
1: Yeah. Thanks so much.
0: Once again, my thanks to Marissa for joining me and really great insight that she can provide. And, and certainly what a great story in terms of, how she's been able to continue her career after you know we we've had the same experience in in these crushing uh, you know uh, professional losses, but then all of a sudden you kind of find the 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 silver lining and you kind of do your own thing and and Marissa has continued to provide great content uh, over the last year with uh, with basically having to be a freelancer in, in a very tense time for media, but uh, what what a great job she has done in that regard. All right, well we're gonna move on and and. You know, since I am in Texas, since we will have a world under 18 championship for the men, um, I do want to talk about that a little bit because it's going to be a really exciting tournament in a lot of different ways because it's obviously the biggest draft event, which we've mentioned many times on this podcast before. But clearly, it's an opportunity for a lot of these players that, that have not had this opportunity before to play in the World Under 18s, and it's it's essentially the mini World Juniors. It follows the same format, you know, the the age bracket very similar in terms of you know it's just a couple years away from these guys. Uh, some of them who will be on World Junior teams as early as next season. That's certainly a big reason that Canada brought some of the underage players they did, like like Shane Wright and Connor Bedard. You know, Russia has some underage players as well, well Matt Vaymitchkov, Ivan Roshnashenko, uh, really good players that uh, that are going to be really exciting to see and to watch in this tournament. Uh, the U.S. has a lot, and if you missed it last week, we learned uh, that that they are going to be without some key players. We already knew that Luke Hughes was going to be out, the top you know top-rated American at the under-18 level. Uh, we have. Got you know, he's he's such an important part of this team, but he suffered a skate laceration um, to his foot that required surgery. And unfortunately, he's out of this tournament. Um, and then also we've got some really interesting, uh, you know, kind of updates. And that's and not really interesting. It's unfortunate more than anything, but USA essentially had three players that are not going to be able to participate in this uh, due to either protocols or, or close contacts. That includes Chaz Lucius, who's one of the top rated players on this team uh, after Luke Hughes and and probably one of the most uh, important players in terms of scoring goals for this team he will not be able to participate in this tournament Um, they will also be without uh, Andre Gassaud and Jacob Martin and so those are key losses for this team they've had to bring in they have seven players from the under 17 team that have been called up to help out and and that gives you a lot of a look at guys for the the forthcoming drafts a few guys that are you know two and, and three years out from their draft year. You know one of the guys that I think is really interesting to watch in the under-17s is Logan Cooley, who essentially is going to have to fill the gap left by Lucius. He's going to be centering uh, Dylan Duke and Sasha Pastajov, And so that is really going to be a key line for the U.S. And so Logan Cooley, a big opportunity for him. There's a couple guys on defense as well. Lane Hudson. Who uh, you know? He's he's a small guy. He's a five foot seven, but he's really shifty, and he's you know he he can make a lot of plays. He's going to be interesting. Um, you know, uh, Ryan Chesley is another guy that they brought in. who's a right shot defenseman, kind of has some dynamic elements. So the young players on Team USA are going to be playing uh, a very important role. And this actually brings me to one of the questions that I received from a listener this week, and I I think it's it's pertinent to to mention now because this is such an important draft event. And obviously, we, you know, we had Ryan Clark on not too long ago talking about the Seattle Kraken. So this comes from Daryl in Seattle. And Daryl asks, if the Kraken want to use the expansion draft to load up on draft picks, should they focus on acquiring 2021 picks that due to COVID could see a lot of quality slip or should they focus on 2022, a draft that could have better talent and better opportunities for evaluation? This is a really interesting question. I'm sure it's something that the, the Seattle Kraken are discussing in depth. I think there's a couple different ways to look at this. The first is that what we see, what we have seen this season, we have enough of a book on the players this season to have at least a good feel for what this season's players look like, and so that's going to have to come down to the scouting staff of Seattle to say, is there enough value in this draft that we feel like we can get guys with later first-round picks, second-round picks? If we should, should we load up on picks for this year, or should we move on and try to find something else? And should should we focus on 2021, where you know we have a chance maybe? To sneak in and get Shane Wright and some other players. You know, we don't really know exactly how that's all going to shake out. The other thing that Seattle has to think about is that general managers may be less than willing to give up things like first round draft picks, given how they were utilized by the Vegas Golden Knights. So, how many lessons have been learned from the previous one? But I will say the 2022 draft. You know it's difficult to have a great read on it. There have been some events that we we did not have this season that kind of help set the table for the following draft year, and that includes the World Under 17 Challenge, which was canceled this year um, due to COVID. So that's a you know an age group where they they're they're not going to have that this year's class, the the U18s for this year did have that tournament because it usually happens in november so that happened before everything kind of shut down so you know there's a there's a there's a longer book so it's it's hard to project out the 2022 draft we know that shane wright is one of the top guys we know that brad lambert for finland is one of the top guys matthew savoy who plays for the dubuque fighting saints but normally would be in the whl he's another guy where it's like he, he could be a top player in this draft we'll see several players in this tournament for usa uh, jack hughes 2.0 is, as he's been uh been known uh but yes, Jack Hughes, who will be going to Northeastern next season, um, a very highly skilled player who's dealt with a lot of injuries this year. So there's a lot of high-end talent that we we are projecting out as high-end talent for 2022, but we don't necessarily have the, the, the full idea of what that class is going to look like because we haven't been able to see so many of those. Uh, Underage players this year, those U seventeen guys that are you know OHL and rookies and WHL, so uh, you know it's it's been hard to get a good read on that. So it's something that really the Seattle Kraken is going to have to decide to do. But I thought that was a great question from Daryl, especially with this tournament kind of in the background. So I think that you know they're going to have to look at this tournament and scout it heavily. I'm sure that Seattle is going to have several scouts here watching this tournament um and and then kind of make some of those determinations based on where their board what their draft board looks like and if there are guys that they have lower on their board that they like enough to say hey let's try to get some of these later first round draft picks to get some of these guys so um i think it could go either way i think if it was me i i'm always gonna lean towards what i know and i think we know more about the 2021 class than we do about the 2022 class and and The one thing that I do want to bring this back to is in the 2018 draft, the Ottawa Senators had lottery protected a pick that was going to be the number four overall pick in the Matt Duchesne trade. They could have deferred that pick to the following year, but they knew they were going to get a player that they wanted. That player happened to be Brady Kachuk, who is now become one of the most important players in their franchise. The pick the following year was a very high pick once again, and the Colorado Avalanche used it to pick Bowen Byram. So both teams ended up benefiting. The Senators probably would have been finer their way, but they ended up getting Brady Kachuk because they went with the, you know, the pick that they, they decided to keep. So that could be a potentially good lesson for the Kraken to take to heart, given that you know more about this class right now, and I think also if you're the Kraken, you kind of want to get some of these guys into your system and start developing them as well. So I think that there's a little bit more urgency. But that's a it's a it's a great thought process to go through and a great question from Daryl. And I thank him both for hit for um, for listening and also for subscribing to Hockey Sense with Chris Peters as he does. And uh, very very appreciative of Daryl's question. So getting back to the World Under 18s and this this whole process, you know. This tournament is going to be wide open. Quite frankly, uh, I think Canada is the best team on paper. I think they have the most skill. They're they're deep. Um, you know, Russia is going to be very good. Sweden is good. The U.S. obviously very good. But the U.S. is going to be very young, as I mentioned, with seven U17 players. It's, I, I believe this will be the youngest team the U.S. has ever brought to this tournament uh, in terms of average age. But they have a lot of interesting you know, players that that could step up and, you know, there there are veteran guys like Sasha Pastajov, who I mentioned, Dylan Duke. They've scored a lot of goals this year. They're very highly offensive players. Um, they'll be playing with Logan Cooley, but then you, you know, you've know you got some guys in the back end. I think Sean Barons is gonna be one of the real breakout stars of this tournament for Team USA. He's uh, gonna play a ton of minutes, especially with Luke Hughes out. You'll probably see him on the number one power play. He's a very dynamic puck moving defenseman committed to go to the University of Denver. I think he's a player that really knows himself in terms of what he needs to do to be successful. So that's another thing that I'm really excited to see in this tournament. I think when you look at Sweden, you're gonna look at Simon Edmondson and Fabian Lassell and um, Simon Robertson and and Izak Rosen. And these are guys that are really, really interesting players. Um, And so I think they give Sweden a chance. For Russia, it's Prohor Poltapov. It's Nikita Chibrikov. It's uh, it's Fedor Svechkov. I mean, these are guys that are going to be big-time draft prospects that you're going to see in June uh, go go pretty early. So those are going to be guys kind of driving the bus. But then they have Mitch and Mirosh who I mentioned earlier as these underage players that very well could be uh, offensive catalysts for this team um the one thing that i don't know much about in this tournament that's been really hard to get a handle on is the goaltending i think they're they're the top goalies for this year in the draft are 2002 born players so they're too old for this tournament so there's you know there's no Jesper for there's no sebastian casa in this tournament and so the goaltending it's it's giving guys a, a chance to shine i think the u.s even we might see uh, they have three goalies we could see all three of them play in this tournament there's gibson homer and caden Emberico and 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 brayden holt who they brought in from the everett silver tips on canada you know is is ben Gaudreau going to be the guy? He played at Sarnia. Hasn't played a game this season. Uh, how does that impact what they're going to do? They, they they have actually a pretty good goaltending group that I think uh, could be a difference-making uh, group for them. And I, I think they're all going to going to see some time but uh very un- unclear what the goaltending is going to look like in this tournament uh, and there's not a ton of super high-end guys i think uh you know carl carl lindbaum for for sweden is, is a guy that's gotten some buzz so you know it's a chance for him to step out um you know finland's got uh, some some question marks in terms of who their starter is going to be so lot of things there and so goaltending obviously becomes such a huge part in international play it's just like special teams and things you know in these short tournaments it's all about you know peaking at the right time getting the right guy hot at the right time and that's where we start to see kind of some of these uh, these players that you know what are they what are they going to be what are they going to do and this is a tournament where they have a chance to really show who they are um, within whatever role they're they're asked to play for their team. So uh, scouts are going to be watching very closely. I think that this this event is going to weigh heavily in the decision process. You can't let it overwhelm the body of work of the player, but to see these guys at this point in this tournament in a key situation where a year where we're not having playoffs in most leagues where we're not having um the opportunity to see these guys compete for championships this is that opportunity for all these scouts to see these guys at that level and i think that that's what's going to make this tournament so important in the overall process of, of evaluating these guys and then you you know i think there are gonna be guys where if you if they really pop in this tournament it's time to go back and do all the homework and all the video work to make sure that you are not missing anything and say, hey, how did he look with his club team? What kind of role did he play with his club team? How much of an impact did he make relative to what he did at this tournament? So you have to go back, and, and that's probably the the ultimate thing that this tournament is going to do. It's going to create a lot of extra work, which is good. That's a good thing to do, and it's a good problem to have for scouts is that you know they're finally getting to see these guys in person, many of them that they have not seen yet live. Um, And I think live views matter a lot, even though video has gotten so much better. So, something to keep in mind as we go through this tournament. But I'm really excited to get it started. Uh, There's, you know, games begin on April 26th and they will roll right through uh, May 6th. So, Definitely make sure that you are watching the tournament on Hockey TV. Make sure you're staying tuned to Hockey Sense with Chris Peters. I'm going to have a daily file that is just going to be keep keep open uh, for subscribers to see player reports, different thoughts from the tournament, things like that, so that you know what's going on. Uh, as the tournament is happening. And then I'll send out an email blast at the end with all of that information in there. So now is the time to subscribe to Hockey Sense with Chris Peters. We're getting geared up for the draft. The draft rankings are on there already. So definitely get there. It's hockeysense.substack.com or chrispetershockey.com hit the subscribe button. It's $6 for a monthly, $54 for an annual. And if you really like what you see, you can become a supporting subscriber. And we're gonna have some events coming up very soon for supporting subscribers, including uh, some virtual happy hours. We're gonna talk, you know, as we get closer to the draft, we're gonna do member mock drafts where you get to participate in the mock drafts. those are the types of things that happen with uh, with a supporting subscriber option. So really excited to provide that level of coverage for both Hockey Sense and for Hockey TV. So make sure you check that out. And uh, boy, thanks so much for, for supporting this podcast, for supporting Hockey Sense with Chris Peters. I am so thankful for all the people that have signed up already and that have subscribed. And, and we're just going to keep this rolling right along. And I hope that uh, you're enjoying it because I'm having... lot of fun with it. So that's going to do it for this week's episode. My name is Chris Peters. This is Talking Hockey Sense, and we will catch you next time.